It is May 20th, 1886, in the small town of Amherst, in Massachusetts. It's a warm summer afternoon. The golden sun beams down on the Victorian home of the Dickinson family. A home affectionately known to the locals as the homestead. Lavinia Dickinson is on the second floor. She slowly opens the door to her sister's room. The modest space is filled with an otherworldly stillness. This is the room her sister Emily spent most of the 55 years of her life alone. Countless hours reading books and writing letters. She sees Emily's small square writing table in front of the room's southwest window, a table that every winter is illuminated by a majestic shaft of sunlight. Lavinia breaks the stillness and slowly enters. She approaches a chest of drawers standing four feet high. This, she knows, is where Emily kept her papers. One of her dying wishes was for Lavinia to burn her correspondences. All the letters she received from friends, family, and acquaintances throughout her 55 years. Now that the awful formality of the funeral is done, she tends to that promise. Lavinia crouches on the floor and begins to sort through the papers. This feels like a violation of Emily's most personal possessions. As she looks through the countless letters, Lavinia can't help but tear up. These letters are cherished pieces of her sister, which she cannot bear to burn to ash, but she will honor the wishes of her dear Emily. She puts them aside and unlocks another drawer. These papers seem a bit more organized than the last. Lavinia carefully lifts them out and notices they are stacked in bundles. Each bundle is neatly tied with a white ribbon. Strange, she's never seen this before, and Emily never mentioned it. She looks one bundle over, holding it in her lap. She takes a look around the room reflexively to check if Emily is there, about to stop her. She curiously unties the ribbon. It is a stack of papers folded and sewn together with slender rope into handmade books. Why would Emily have sewn her letters together like this? Maybe each bundle is from a different person. She carefully opens the first one. This is not a letter. It's a short poem in Emily's handwriting. A word is dead when it is said. Some say, I say, 
it just begins to live that day. Lavinia turns the page. Another poem. The soul selects her own society, then shuts the door to her divine majority, present no more. Unmoved, she notes the chariots pausing at her low gate. Unmoved, an emperor be kneeling upon her mat. I've known her from an ample nation. Choose one, then close the valves of her attention like stone. And on the facing page, another. She is confused. She picks up another bundle, undoes the ribbon, and opens it. A poem. She looks back in the drawer. Dozens and dozens of bundles, all neatly sewn together and tied up in ribbons. Each bundle containing hundreds and hundreds of poems. Lavinia Dickinson has unknowingly stumbled on the greatest discovery of American literature, Emily Dickinson's 1,789 poems. Welcome to Creative Codex. I am your host, MJ Dorian. On this episode, we will attempt to unravel the enigma of Emily Dickinson. I make no claims that we will succeed where many biographers have failed. We will soon see why. But as we navigate Emily's labyrinth, we will try to understand her. And we will answer these questions. What makes Emily Dickinson a genius of the written word? What is it about her writing that grips us today as if it had been written only yesterday? Also, why did she become a recluse in the second half of her life, spending her last 25 years in her parents' house, never leaving, never traveling, and only communicating with select few people through letters? And perhaps most importantly, what can her story teach us about creativity? If you are unfamiliar with Emily Dickinson, she was a poet in America during the mid-1800s who was a complete unknown during her time. Only 11 of her poems were published during her life. 10 of them were against her wishes, and most of them anonymously without her name attached. Even more so, her poems were altered by editors to fit the conventional writing of the time, of course, always without her permission. So, why should we be talking about this unknown poet from over 150 years ago, a writer who was dismissed by publishers and editors of her time? Simple. Those editors and publishers who rejected her work in the 1800s were idiots, buffoons, 
Men stricken by aesthetic blindness, unable to recognize genius if it smacked them in the face. We are talking about a creative mind on the level of Shakespeare, being overlooked for the sake of social convention. This is one of the great travesties of English literature. Side note, throughout the episode, there will be moments where you will be hearing Emily's poems. The art of poetry is best appreciated in two ways, audibly and visually. The episode will take care of the audible part, but you should give a moment to look at the poems as well. For that, I've made a handy guide on my website, which shows the full poems in their order of appearance, so you can appreciate reading them too. Head over to mjdorian.com forward slash Emily. That's M-J-D-O-R-I-A-N dot com forward slash E-M-I-L-Y. Head over there to read these incredible works of creativity. Back to the episode. There was a commonly held misconception at the time that women could not be poets. And if a poet was a woman, that she must fit within the constraining boundaries of pleasant and flowery verse. And there stood Emily Dickinson, a woman out of time, defiant to convention, fiercely protective of her creative voice, writing poems that work like ticking time bombs, loaded guns filled with emotions, philosophy, scientific curiosity, fixations on death, ruminations on eternal love, critical views of religion, a depth of feeling for nature, and an unmistakable violence. Yes, all of those themes are startling to gradually discover in Dickinson's writing, but it is the occasional touch of violence in her poems which launches her into modernity. She sees an abyss and she does not wither. She takes a step. Spending time with her over these last two months has made it clear to me that her work contains some of the greatest poems in the English language. It's honestly mind-boggling. And my one regret is that I didn't cross paths with them years before. But maybe I wouldn't have been ready and would not be able to appreciate them as I do now. As I read her, I keep expecting the awe-inspiring verses and phrases to run out. And yet, there is more. 1,789. That is the number of poems Miss Dickinson left us. That is the number of poems which her sister Lavinia found, stashed away in those locked cabinet drawers. Emily had sewn together countless pages over 20 years into these booklets called fascicles. For who? For the future. For Lavinia to discover. For us to discover. Because, as we shall see about Emily, hers was not a mind concerned with the present. Her concern 
was immortality. Chapter 1 The Bell of Amherst This is my letter to the world that never wrote to me the simple news that nature told with tender majesty. Her message is committed to hands I cannot see for love of her, sweet countrymen, judge tenderly of me. What makes Emily Dickinson so unique? And how do we understand her? The first step is to understand the historical context she inhabited, the time and place of her existence. When we know this, we can appreciate how rare and unique Dickinson really was. Emily Elizabeth Dickinson was born on December 10th, 1830 in the small but noteworthy town of Amherst in Massachusetts. Amherst is a university town, most notable for being the home of Amherst College, which was established in 1821, nine years before Emily's birth. Emily's father, Edward Dickinson, was a lawyer and a trustee of Amherst College. Mr. Dickinson was a stern and rigid fellow, it was said that no one had ever seen him smile. Once, when he had been posing for a photograph with his clenched jaw and stiff shoulders, the photographer asked, Mr. Dickinson, could you please smile a little? To which he replied, I am smiling. <laughs> Emily said of her father's heart that it was pure and terrible. When Mr. Dickinson was courting Emily's mother, he once wrote to her, I do not expect or wish for a life of pleasure. Unquote. In addition to being a lawyer, he also held public office, becoming a congressman and a senator. In spite of his stern demeanor, Emily did have a good relationship with her father. It is clear that he respected her individuality and valued her intellectual development. He would often buy her both books of science and poetry in his travels. But strangely, her relationship with her mother seemed complicated and strained. In correspondences with friends, she describes her mother as cold and aloof. In one letter, she says that as a child, if something distressed her, she would run home to her older brother, Austin, rather than her mother. In her words, he was an awful mother, but I liked him better than none." Unquote. Emily was a precocious middle child. She had two siblings. Austin, her brother, was a year older, and Lavinia, her sister, was two years younger. In the small town of Amherst, the Dickinson family was something like nobility. For one, 
in the year of 1830, it only boasted a population of 2,600 people. This was the type of town where everyone knew everyone else's business, and attending Sunday Mass was essentially a requirement. In those times, churches were woven into the social fabric of every community. They weren't simply for religious purposes, but also for fostering communal bonds. And so, when young Emily Dickinson, the daughter of the town's most distinguished lawyer, stopped going to church, people noticed. When her mother, father, sister, and brother continued going without her, people noticed. When Emily in her 20s had refused to praise God and show the animated gestures of puritanical conversion, people noticed there was something not right about that Dickinson girl. And in the coming years, the impression that an enigma lived amongst them only grew and grew. This enigma would present itself when company visited the homestead, but Emily would remain upstairs. Or when rumors spread that Miss Emily only wore white and avoided social gatherings. Well, that made people want to catch a glimpse of her even more. Into her thirties, Emily became ever more secluded, to the point that the townspeople of Amherst no longer called her Miss Emily. They fashioned her a new name, The Myth. Emily The Myth Dickinson. It's a nickname that likely pleased her. What better way to elevate oneself above daily life than to approach something mythical, something removed from corporeal existence. Why was she a recluse, though, spending the last 25 years of her life avoiding human contact? What happened that made her turn away from the world and dedicate herself instead to this secret magnum opus, these 1,789 poems? The answer to that question has perplexed biographers for over a hundred years. One prevailing theory is that she suffered a broken heart so intense that she receded into seclusion to nurse the wound. Another theory is that she had an illness that was so serious that it ruled out the possibility of ever leading a normal life. And yet, a third theory has begun to emerge in recent years. Emily preferred solitude to company because it gave her the liberty to write. Solitude gave her the freedom to explore the depths of her creative genius without the pressures placed on women of the 1800s. During that time period, a woman's life had only two paths. To become a wife, bearing numerous children and tending to a household, or to become a teacher. The idea that Emily Dickinson might have found a more favorable alternative to those paths must have been so foreign to people in the 1800s that it did not even cross their minds. But as attractive as that idea might be to our modern perspective, we can't rule out the second theory. Something was 
desperately wrong with Emily Dickinson's health, either physically or mentally. And whatever it was, it seemed to rule her life. In countless letters she sent to friends and family members, she mentions a sickness and being stricken with something serious. But a name is never attributed to that illness. Is it really possible that she had an illness that was so taboo, that was so unmentionable that it forced her into seclusion? It seems that modern research into her life confirms this theory and points at one specific disorder. And as we examine her poems, she seems to sprinkle little hints here and there that confirm it. We will explore that later. All of this is part of the enigma of Emily Dickinson. And yet, there is more. Her true nature is like a poem whose meaning eludes our every grasp. Chapter 2. What is Poetry? Okay, I never tend to agree with the textbook definitions of these things, so I am going to try my best to define what poetry is and how I understand it. So, here goes. Poetry is the music of words. That's it. Poetry is the music of words. This is my personal definition, which I feel most closely sums up the nature of poetry. Now, let's unpack that. What do we know music has? Rhythm, melody, emotion, structure, and a relationship to time. These are the main aspects that poetry also shares with music. We can see these as the building blocks of any poem. The rhythm of the words, the melody or cadence of a phrase, the emotion conveyed, the structure and proportion of the words to the whole, and the dependence, in spoken word, on the passage of time. Let's appreciate each one of these aspects by using examples from Emily Dickinson. We'll start with the poem, Hope is the Thing with Feathers. Hope is the thing with feathers that perches in the soul and sings the tune without the words and never stops at all and sweetest in the gale is heard and sore must be the storm that could abash the little bird that kept so many warm. I've heard it in the chillest land and on the strangest sea, yet never in extremity it asked a crumb of me. It's one of Dickinson's most often quoted poems. 
one aspect that makes it so memorable and easy to quote is that it is written in a common meter. When we say meter in reference to poetry, we are talking about the number of syllables per line. This is what we mean by the rhythm of the words. For example, the first line, hope is the thing with feathers. Hope is the thing with feathers. That's seven syllables. The second line, that perches in the soul. That perches in the soul. That's six syllables. In this poem, aside from the first line, we have a steady and predictable rhythm of 8686 per stanza. The first line being the only exception, we have seven syllables on the first line, six syllables on the second line, then eight on the third, and six on the fourth line. In the following two stanzas, it's the steady 8686 pattern. A stanza is like a poem's paragraph, or a short section, which usually contains an idea. The following stanzas then elaborate on that idea or present new ideas of their own. Here we are now exploring the aspect of structure and the proportion of groups of words to the whole. The first stanza of Hope is a Thing with Feathers presents us with the metaphor that hope is a bird. Hope is the thing with feathers that perches in the soul and sings the tune without the words and never stops at all. Then the second stanza elaborates on the metaphor, presenting the scenario of a fierce storm, reflecting on the idea that throughout the storms of our lives, it is hope which helps carry us through. It is hope which sings a song to our soul. And sweetest in the gale is heard, and sore must be the storm that could abash the little bird that kept so many warm. Curiously, Emily presents a little twist in that second stanza, when she says the storm or tribulation of life must be especially ferocious to destroy hope, and sore must be the storm that could abash the little bird. She uses the curious word abash here, which means to embarrass or destroy the confidence of, implying something that would make the bird of hope give up. But there is a slight tinge of violence to the choice of that word, to abash the little bird, to bash the little bird. There is no doubt that Emily loved double meanings and dark undertones in her phrasing. There is never a single syllable wasted in her poems. You can imagine her sitting into the late hours of the night sculpting and reworking word choices and syllables. So I think she noticed the soft violence of that phrase and leaned into it deliberately. Then the third and final stanza. I've heard it in the chillest land and on the strangest sea, yet never in extremity it asked a crumb of me. Here, she brings the metaphor home. That bird of hope follows a soul into foreign lands, periods of your life which are unfamiliar. And yet, 
for all that a little bird gives you, it never asks the smallest crumb in return. It's beautiful. And it's all housed within this elegant structure of alternating eights and sixes in the syllables. The risk of using a predictable meter is that it can become boring or monotonous. So Emily adds to this an unpredictable rhyming scheme, which changes from stanza to stanza. We may understand a rhyming scheme by judging the ending of each line and noticing which ending words rhyme with the other ending words. So if cat is the end of line one and hat is the end of line two, we would say it is an AA rhyming scheme. But if we end line one with hat, line two with ear, that would be an AB. Add a line three with hat and line four with fear, then we have an ABAB rhyming scheme, which is the basic and predictable rhyming scheme of most children's books, but also a lot of pop songs. But remember, there is a danger in being too predictable. The mind tires quick of art it can predict. See what I did there? AA rhyming scheme. <laughs> so in the first stanza of Hope is a Thing with Feathers, we have an A, B, C, B scheme with the words feathers, soul, words, all. Soul and all aren't direct rhymes, but they still count. They are more like soft rhymes, or as Emily Dickinson called them, slant rhymes. She really loves using those. Second stanza has an A, B, A, B with heard, storm, bird, warm. And the last stanza has a B, B, B. Land, sea, extremity, me. Because the syllable structure is locked, there is a familiar and charming flow to the rhythm. But because the rhyming schemes are varied, A, B, C, B, A, B, A, B, A, B, 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 she adds this unpredictable twist. This is the music of poetry. And Emily Dickinson is a master composer in full control of her orchestra. But these aren't her only tools. Almost Every Dickinson poem also plays with two devices, metaphor and double meanings. Dickinson will often take a metaphor and frame an entire poem around it, letting the metaphor run its course. It really creates a very unique effect, which adds to the impression that her poems exist in this alternate world of abstraction. So what is a metaphor? Well, when Dickinson says, Hope is a thing with feathers. We understand she isn't being literal, right? That is a metaphor. A metaphor is when a writer creates a relationship between two unrelated things. In Hope is a thing with feathers, Dickinson creates a relationship between birds and a distinctly human experience of hope. Then throughout the poem, she elaborates 
on the unique correlation of the two. And by the end, we begin to see both birds and hope in an entirely new light. Let's try another. Here is another Dickinson metaphor. Death is a dialogue between the spirit and the dust. The metaphor here is dialogue. Because can spirit and dust have a conversation? Not in the literal sense, right? And there is an intimacy to the word dialogue. Dickinson has chosen it here to marry together spirit and dust and convince us of their relationship. But even here, she is creating a kind of compound metaphor because we understand she doesn't literally mean dust either. We understand that she means it poetically or metaphorically, that dust is a stand-in for all things that die and the effects of the passage of time on the physical world. Metaphor allows a writer like Dickinson to be incredibly economical with her words, allowing her to fit complex, dense ideas into these short structures. She can say in one line what would take most people two pages to describe. Death is a dialogue between the spirit and the dust. I'll offer you one more, one of my personal favorites. And it's a poem considered by many to be one of Emily Dickinson's unequivocal masterpieces. My life had stood a loaded gun. My life had stood a loaded gun in corners till a day the owner passed, identified and carried me away. And now we roam in sovereign woods and now we hunt the doe. And every time I speak for him, the mountains straight reply. And do I smile, such cordial light, upon the valley glow? It is as a Vesuvian face had let its pleasure through. And when at night, our good day done, I guard my master's head. Tis better than the eider duck's deep pillow to have shared. To foe of his... I'm deadly foe, none stir the second time, on whom I lay a yellow eye, or an emphatic thumb, though I than he may longer live, he longer must than I, for I have but the power to kill without the power to die. This poem has both perplexed and astounded readers and biographers since the moment Lavinia Dickinson found it in 1886. My life had stood a loaded gun. What a phrase. She once asked Thomas Wentworth Higginson, the man who would one day help publish her poems, whether her poems were alive. And after more than a century, boy, are they ever. Some things to notice with this one. We see the steady meter of 8686 return in the syllable structure, just like in Hope is a Thing with Feathers. It's important to point out that this common meter existed well before Emily started writing. It is born out of the structure of the English language, but even more so out of the convention of church song. In liturgical music, 
the 8686 syllable structure is called hymn meter. Emily grew up in Amherst, Massachusetts during the mid-1800s when the town was thoroughly Puritan. Puritanism is a conservative brand of English Christianity. It sought to distance itself from the formal Pope-centric structure of Catholicism, but it still held its own rigid assumptions about social structure. For example, it was the Puritans of New England that led the persecution of the accused witches in the Salem Witch Trials of 1692. Puritans also believed it was the government's responsibility to enforce morality and to ensure that religious worship was being done correctly. This hymn meter is so common. We still hear it today. For example, the song Amazing Grace has it. Here's a recording from 1922 by a group called the Original Sacred Harp Choir. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound, eight syllables, that saved a wretch like me, six syllables, I once was lost, but now am found, eight syllables, was blind, but now I see, six syllables. So here is the weird part. You can take any of Emily Dickinson's hymn meter poems and sing them to the tune of Amazing Grace. And they work perfectly. Here, let's try it. <clears throat> My life had stood a loaded gun In corners till the day the owner passed, identified, and carried me away. Weird, right? Kind of like a lost Johnny Cash song. So, did she want us to sing these poems? Probably not. I think she was using hymn meter as a way to structure her creativity. For example, when you look at classical music and a composer like Frédéric Chopin, when Chopin writes a waltz, does he expect you to dance to it? Probably not. Artists do this all the time. They take a common structure or form and elevate it to something new. I call this sublimation. They use it to then express something novel or 
In the case of Emily Dickinson, she uses the hymn meter as a form of subversion. Let me explain. She seems to revel in the contrast of using something with religious undertones, but layering on top of it something startling, like a loaded gun, or hunting a baby deer, or the power to kill. Every one of these stanzas is so packed with powerful imagery. For example, whose perspective is the poem told from? A gun. There is so much going on here. She is again working with compound metaphors, taking the metaphor of a gun and loading on top of it more metaphors. <laughs> it has the effect of watching a championship kickboxer, putting together combinations of punches, setting you up with footwork, and right before the bell, hitting you with a roundhouse kick for the knockout. In the second stanza, when she says, and now we roam in sovereign woods, and now we hunt the doe, and every time I speak for him, the mountains straight reply. How does a gun speak? By firing. And how do the mountains reply? By echoing the shot. In the third stanza, and do I smile such cordial light upon the valley glow, it is as a Vesuvian face had let its pleasure through. What cordial light is she smiling with? How about the light that the gun gives when it fires? And what is a Vesuvian face? It is the face of a volcano as it explodes, or as she says, let its pleasure through. In the fourth stanza, and when at night our good day done, I guard my master's head. Tis better than the eider duck's deep pillow to have shared. What's that about a duck? Eider duck down is considered the softest and most expensive down in the world to fill a pillow with. She is stating that guarding her master's head at night is more rewarding or pleasurable to her than sharing with him the most luxurious pillow. In the fifth stanza, to foe of his, I'm deadly foe. None stir the second time, on whom I lay a yellow eye or an emphatic thumb. A yellow eye. Hmm. Consider this. If you have a gun pointed straight at you, I hope you never will, but if we imagine it, and it fires, what must the blast that comes from the barrel look like? A yellow eye. And the thumb is the finger that cocks the gun. Then the sixth and final stanza, and this one, this one's a real whopper, the roundhouse kick for the knockout. Having had some experience writing poetry, I must assume that in this poem, it was the final stanza that came first to Emily. It's just too inspired to have been written organically or procedurally. It's simply genius. Though I, then he, may longer live, he longer must than I. For I have but the power to kill without the power to die. 
she places a strange contradiction before us. The poem is from the gun's perspective, so we imbue it with a certain life, as it is speaking to us. But it is the human who must live longer than the gun, because although the gun can kill, in truth, it cannot die. It's a perplexing statement. It forces you to dissect it like a philosophical problem, but it's in the way she frames it with her rhyming scheme that it implicitly makes sense to us. It has an A-B-C-B scheme, so that the final word lands on a strong, direct rhyme. The second line ends with I, the fourth line ends with die. The second and fourth line rhymes together are I, die. Wild, right? Maybe the gun itself is a metaphor. After all, it is the poem that is living on. And it is her poetry that hunts nature down and captures it in verse. It is the poem that is the gun. And it is her poetry that lives on without the power to die. My life had stood a loaded gun in corners till a day the owner passed, identified, and carried me away. And now we roam in sovereign woods, and now we hunt the doe. And every time I speak for him, the mountains straight reply. And do I smile, such cordial light, upon the valley glow? It is as a Vesuvian face had let its pleasure through, and when at night, our good day done, I guard my master's head. Tis better than the eider duck's deep pillow to have shared. To foe of his, I'm deadly foe. None stir the second time. On whom I lay a yellow eye or an emphatic thumb. Though I than he may longer live, he longer must than I. For I have but the power to kill, without the power to die. Dickinson's poems are like an archaeological dig. Just when you think you have exhausted them of their meaning, another layer yet shows up. For example, remember in chapter one when we mentioned Emily's family? There was one member of her family particularly well known for her fierce temper and rage which was her grandmother. Her name again? Lucretia Gunn. Emily being a descendant of hers, she is part of the Gunn lineage. And in a sense, she may have seen herself as a loaded gun, both literally, being in a family of guns, and metaphorically. My life had stood a loaded gun. Yeah. Now that I have read biographies of her life and read hundreds of her poems, it really confirms this habit. She uses metaphors to convey meaning, but she also sprinkles in double meanings in these phrases, either organically or deliberately, to make them self-referential. It's like her poetry forms pieces of an abstract autobiography. So... Don't let her image fool you. She 
isn't some prim and proper lady of the 1800s concerned with posterity. While female writers of her day were publishing poems about flowers and romantic love, Emily Dickinson was writing about guns, death, and violence, but also love, nature, and God. She defies convention. And curiously, this poem, My Life Had Stood, A Loaded Gun, is excluded from the first published volumes of her poetry. In 1890, four years after her death, the first volumes of her poetry began to finally be published. And as recently as 2003, Barnes & Noble published a 350-page book called The Collected Poems of Emily Dickinson, which recreates the original editing of these early volumes. Well, guess what? I have this book, and The Collected Poems of Emily Dickinson leaves out My Life Had Stood a Loaded Gun. What the hell? That's like publishing a book of Van Gogh's paintings and leaving out Starry Night. The only explanation is this. The original publishers in 1890 combed through Emily's 1,789 poems, and there were a handful, like this one, that were too unconventional for the time maybe too masculine for a female writer. Or very likely, they just didn't fit with the narrative that the publishers were trying to sell us. The narrative that fit Emily Dickinson into the trope of a timid, fragile and sensitive woman driven into seclusion by heartbreak. Screw them, right? Let's find out who she really is. Chapter 3. The Soul Selects Her Own Society When Emily Dickinson appears in pop culture, we often see the myth and not the woman. She is often depicted as the reclusive artist type, too sensitive for the world, locking herself away due to heartbreak from a failed romance. That's only half true, at best. Looking into her early years, we see someone quite different, someone unafraid of society, even unafraid of challenging the opinions of her peers. There are only two known photographs of Emily. The first is the most famous. It is the portrait taken when she was 16 years old, attending school at Mount Holyoke, a female seminary. The portrait presents us a young woman with a direct but enigmatic gaze. Her hair is parted modestly down the middle and tied back flat over her ears. She is sitting with a perfect posture that suggests New England correctness and is wearing a Puritan dress. Considering she is not wearing any lipstick, she has noticeably full lips, and her eyes appear to us as deep black pools. As the author, 
Lyndall Gordon states in the book Lives Like Loaded Guns, Who amongst us can face her steady watchful eye? For there's something at the back of that eye that warns us to be very, very careful. Unquote. But what this famous photo does not capture is the color red, the deep red of Emily's hair, which is complemented by her pale complexion and the freckles on her skin. Somehow, imagining her with red hair and freckles already lends a lighter and less brooding quality to the photo. One curious positive of being raised in a Puritan town, like Amherst, is that education is encouraged for both boys and girls. The intention being that a young person should be educated enough that they can read and understand the Bible daily without assistance. But with the aptitude to read comes the ability to explore new frontiers of literature. Emily particularly loved Charlotte Bronte and her sisters. One of her all-time favorite books was Jane Eyre. This was a book that presented male and female characters with deep emotional intelligence, a writing approach that unearthed the submerged words between our daily instants. One can clearly see early influence on Emily's literary taste from these types of novels. In 1855, five years after Charlotte Bronte died, Emily would still reflect on her early influence, stating in a letter, Oh, what an afternoon for heaven, when Bronte entered there. But Bronte was held to such high esteem because she was an exception. On the whole, during Emily's formative years, a woman was discouraged from pursuing anything like a creative career. Oddly enough, after the rigorous studies, a young woman was expected to become a homemaker and a wife who would be able to serve her family that much better with her education. At the time, there was an often referenced book called Letters to a Young Lady, written by Reverend John Bennett. It is a rule book of etiquette directed toward young women on what is proper and improper to expect from their life. Emily's mother brought it with her when she moved to Amherst along with her Bible and hymn book. So there is no doubt that Emily would have been aware of it and would have been told to read it and follow its instructions. In letters to a young lady, Reverend John Bennett warns women not to write anything loftier than letters. In Lives Like Loaded Guns, the author goes on. To go through the Reverend Mr. Bennett's rule book is to see how ironically the poet fitted herself point for point, with all the extravagance and precision of her character. The minister directs girls' attention to volcanoes to awaken a sense of awe. With apparent obedience, the poet internalizes the volcano, but the latent explosiveness of a still volcano life is not what he had in mind. The same with plants. Pour on plants, advises the minister and I will engage you to become, in your turn, one of the most beautiful flowers in creation. As a child, 
Emily works away at her herbarium and delights in her flourishing plants. But later she will take on the character of Daisy, an eroticized Daisy turning her petals towards the man of noon. Not the minister's idea, for sure. The most fertile loophole in the minister's advice leaves his dear young lady free to engage in one kind of writing. He says, to write letters is a very desirable excellence in a woman. A man attends to the niceties of grammar. A woman gives us the effusions of her soul. Emily Dickinson arrogates this liberty, but deploys the ungrammatical deliberately to invent a language of her own. So Dickinson both obeyed the rules and pushed them to the edge with a kind of flagrant glee. One rule, though, she disobeyed outright. Poetry I do not wish you to cultivate, Bennett advised. A passion for poetry is dangerous to a woman. It heightens her natural sensibility to an extravagant and sickly degree, he explained, and then repeated in his most forbidding manner, I do not wish you to become a poet. Yet he could not shut off the beat of the Isaac Watts hymns that had been adopted by the First Church of Amherst. Each Sunday that combination of scripture and hymn meter fell on the ears of a child who would, one day, deploy that meter as the poet she was to be." Unquote. Emily was the precocious middle child of the family, a year younger than her brother, Austin, and two years older than her sister, Lavinia. In 1935, at the age of five, Emily begins her four years of primary school. Then in September of 1940, at the age of 10, Emily and Lavinia begin their first year at Amherst Academy. She notes in her letters that she is in love with her teachers. It was during those seven years at Amherst that Emily first learns about science and biology. This sparks a passion in her a thirst for understanding the wonders and mysteries of the world through the lens of science. And in countless ways it influences her poetry in the years that will follow. Around this time, Emily writes to a friend, saying, We have a very fine school. There are 63 scholars. I have four studies. They are mental philosophy, geology, Latin, and botany." Unquote. The author of Lives Like Loaded Guns states, Many images in Dickinson's poems would be drawn from geology. Volcanoes, earthquakes, coral reefs, anthracite, quartz. And she had a lifelong passion for plants. She studied Edward Hitchcock's catalog of plants growing without cultivation in the vicinity of Amherst College. And collected specimens for her herbarium. Unquote. The author of that book, Edward Hitchcock, he was a respected professor of chemistry and natural history at Amherst Academy, the very same where Emily went, and it is said he made the academy a leader in the natural sciences, on par with Harvard 
and yell. Lives like loaded guns goes on. At the same time, Hitchcock encouraged women's education and invited local schoolgirls to sit in on college lectures along the sides to avoid the impropriety of sitting amongst the men. He spoke of a time scale reaching far back into past eternity. His evolutionary chart looked at plants and animals side by side. In the late 1830s, geologists such as Charles Lyell had come upon incontrovertible evidence of the time scale of prehistory and nearly 20 years before Darwin's The Origin of Species, Hitchcock spoke a pre-Darwinian language. Species, he said, were gradually fitted to adapt to peculiar conditions. Hitchcock foresaw the conflict between the creation story in the Bible and warned religious teachers to keep up with the inquiring young. To him, as an ordained minister, the eternity of matter did not preclude a deity. Even if continents arose from natural causes, the creation of life must be regarded as the highest act of omnipotence. As a transcendent naturalist, the professor urged pupils to seek the divine character through examining formations of rocks." Unquote. It was in these classes that Emily learned about the lava ever teeming under Earth's crust. And Professor Hitchcock gave special distinction to Mount Vesuvius, which was the volcano whose eruption engulfed Pompeii and Herculaneum in 79 AD. One can trace the threads of Emily's creative processes through crumbs like these, all the way through to poems she wrote 20 years later, such as My Life Had Stood a Loaded Gun, which we focused in the last chapter. Recall that in the third stanza of that poem, she says, It is as a Vesuvian face had let its pleasure through. Because of her education, Emily had full knowledge of the implication of a volcano like Mount Vesuvius, which destroyed two ancient cities in a matter of moments. It shows the lasting effect that a good education had on her intellectual development, but it also shows an early tendency of her mind to see the world through metaphors and symbols. The volcano becomes a recurring symbol in her poetry. The implication of a torrent of lava teeming beneath the surface. She starts another poem with the lines. A still volcano, life that flickered in the night. We know that part of Emily's creative process was working on her poetry late into the night when the homestead was quiet and all were asleep. Some accounts say she would wake up at 3 a.m. and head over to her modest writing desk, light the lantern, and get to work, perhaps following a thread of a phrase she heard in a dream. Other accounts mention that she sometimes stayed up until dawn when the silence broke, and the birds began to announce the new day. 
scholars have suggested that the appearance of the volcano in Emily's poems is always autobiographical, that somehow she sees a kinship with that frightening geological wonder. Teeming beneath her own surface, she recognizes a similar force of raw natural power. Emily's ability for the written word began to distinguish her from her peers at school. One teacher was noted as saying that Emily excelled at writing, and that even more concerning was that she seemed to know she excelled at it. The book, Lives Like Loaded Guns, goes on. Already as a girl, her brilliance was recognized. Her compositions, said to be unlike anything ever heard, were applauded at fortnightly performances that were central to the Academy's curriculum. Pupils took turns to read either their own essays or extracts from books of their choice. Emily participated keenly and critically. At 12, she sassed a boy who read a piece on thinking twice before you speak. The boy pictured a gullible youth who thinks nature has formed a certain young lady to perfection, but who should have remembered that roses conceal thorns. To Emily, she said he appeared the silliest creature that ever lived. I told him that I thought he had better think twice before he spoke. At 15, she lengthened her skirts and teased other girls with a flawless front, writing, I have grown tall a good deal and wear my golden tresses done up in a net cap. Modesty, you know, forbids me to mention whether my personal appearance has altered." Unquote. That year, Mr. Dickinson gave her a square piano, and always supplied most of the books she wanted, even if he remained somewhat uneasy. He was too busy with his briefs to notice what we do, his daughter said later. He buys me many books, but begs me not to read them, because he fears they joggle the mind." Unquote. Although Mr. Dickinson believed a woman's place was at home, when Emily implored him that she wished to continue her education, he did consent. In September, nearing the age of 17, Emily began her studies at the country's first women's college. Mount Holyoke Female Seminary. The founder of Mount Holyoke was Mary Lyon, a forward-thinking academic woman who was mentored by Professor Hitchcock, the science teacher at Emily's former school. As the author Lyndall Gordon says of Miss Lyon, her dream was women's greatness at a time when to many a great woman was a contradiction in terms." Unquote. Emily was nervous about the new school, but she coped easily and diligently studied her classes, which now included algebra, Euclidean geometry, physiology, chemistry, and astronomy. It's around this time, in her late teens, that a more pronounced split begins to manifest between Emily and religion. This was an odd time period in the 1840s, where the whole state of Massachusetts was going through a religious revival, during which people placed faith above science. Emily later wrote a miniature poem about this, which 
captures her trademark wit. It goes. Faith is a fine invention, when gentlemen can see, but microscopes are prudent in an emergency. The book Lives Like Loaded Guns describes Emily's stand against the school's demands of faith. Unfortunately for Emily, Miss Lyon was bent on pressing students to be saved. The overwhelming majority succumbed. Emily did not. On one occasion, Miss Lyon called on all who wished to be Christians to rise. Emily Dickinson remained seated. The only one, the story goes. They thought it queer I didn't rise. She reportedly recounted the scene to her family. I thought a lie would be queerer. Miss Lyon would demand, have you said your prayers? Yes, Emily would answer, though it can't make much difference to the Creator. Extra meetings would take place in Miss Lyon's room, and targeted girls were required to indicate in advance with a note if they wished to attend. On January 17, 1848, at the end of her first term, Emily attended a session for those who felt an uncommon anxiety to decide. Emily said in a letter that same day, Many are flocking to the Ark of Safety. I have not yet given up to the claims of Christ. Again on May 16th, she felt compelled once more to own her failure. I have neglected the one thing needful when all were obtaining it. It seemed that other girls desired only to be good. How I wish I could say that with sincerity, but I fear I never can. Her tone is rueful. It was not amusing to be a moral outcast when Miss Lyon consigned her to the lowest of three categories of students, the saved, the hopeful, and a remnant of about thirty no-hopers." Emily the no-hoper. It's important to note that although these were troubling aspects of Emily's schooling, she still excelled in her classes, passing exams and being an exceptional student. But these distinctions between Emily and the community around her, they would only solidify over time. The rift that made it clear she was an outlier would become ever greater until, in her thirties, she stopped going to church altogether. In a close-knit puritanical town like Amherst, that must have seemed like a denouncement of God. And yet, it is clear that Emily kept an open mind about God and spirituality. It seems her quarrel was with religion. She later wrote, Some keep the Sabbath going to church. I keep it staying at home. Then there is one of my personal favorite poems of hers, written when she was 32. The opening line gives it the title, The Brain is Wider Than the Sky. The brain is wider than the sky, for, put them side by side, the one the other will contain with ease, and you beside. The brain is deeper than the sea, for, 
Hold them, blue to blue, the one the other will absorb, as sponges, buckets do. The brain is just the weight of God, for heft them, pound for pound, and they will differ, if they do, as syllable from sound. It's an awe-inspiring exploration of philosophy in verse. She is wrestling with the nature of perception itself. The brain can contain the sky. The brain can meet and surpass the depths of the sea, even absorbing it like a sponge. But when she reaches God, the mental exercise comes to an impasse. The brain is just the weight of God, for heft them pound for pound, and they will differ if they do as syllable from sound. She seems to be implying that there is a correspondence between the brain and God. One implication being that God is an invention of the brain, and that is why they are the same weight. But another implication being that the brain should be capable of perceiving God in some sense, since they share an attribute. But she says, if you weigh them both, they will differ if they do, as syllable from sound. It is perfectly enigmatic. She twists and bends grammar to the unfathomable problem. For one, how does syllable differ from sound? And if you arrive at that understanding, please explain it to me. And then, also, how does that metaphor sustain a comparison between the brain and God? It is deliberately paradoxical, a philosophical exercise, one worthy of writing a thesis paper on. It is like a Zen koan, something which the longer you reflect upon, then the more your mind is brought to its limits. This is the brand of spirituality that Emily wholeheartedly embraces, the kind that is woven through with beauty and paradox, not the kind that is supported by grand standing and social pressures. As much as many of Emily's poems seem to avoid overt personal details, there is one which is undoubtedly about her and her experiences surrounding that rift between the faithful and herself. It is the poem entitled, I am seated, I've stopped being theirs. In it, she states, I'm seated, I've stopped being theirs. The name they dropped upon my face with water in the country church is finished using now and they can put it with my dolls, my childhood, in the string of spools I've finished threading, too. She has this remarkable skill at creating a compelling first line, a line full of movement and loaded with implications. Her opener, I'm seated, I've stopped being theirs, captures in a single line a point in her thirties when she must have realized there was no turning back. In the text, she uses the word seated, C-E-D-E-D, -E -D, which often means to give up something, to relinquish it. 
In all my years of reading countless passages in the English language, I've never come across such a phrase, I'm seated. It is once again paradoxical, but we understand what she is saying. She has given up herself. But what self? As the stanza continues, it becomes clear she has given up the Emily they wanted her to be, the one amongst the faithful, the precocious youth. She is both seated, having given herself up, but she has also stopped being theirs. She has split in two. One Emily is the one she gave up. The other is the one that continues on. As the poem continues, her choice of religious and celestial imagery elevate this to an even more powerful statement. Let's listen to it in full. I'm seated. I've stopped being theirs. The name they dropped upon my face with water in the country church is finished using now. And they can put it with my dolls, my childhood, in the string of spools I've finished threading, too. Baptized, before, without the choice, but this time, consciously, of grace. Unto supremest name, called to my fool, the crescent dropped, existence's whole arc, filled up with one small diadem, my second rank, too small the first, crowd, crowing, on my father's breast, a half-unconscious queen, but this time, adequate, erect, with will to choose or to reject, and I choose just a crown. Next time on Creative Codex. Emily Dickinson shuts her door on the world, and in that room, on the second floor of her father's house, she begins to write, obsessively, for ten remarkably productive years, perfecting hundreds of poems. We will explore how she did it, why she did it, and we will meet the singular woman who becomes the center of her affections, early adorations, and her closest lifelong friend, Susan Gilbert. She is one of the worthy few that Emily's soul selects as she shuts the door. Lastly, we will trace the evidence that Emily left in her poems and the new research that points toward the illness that caused Emily to go into seclusion one which caused her father to suddenly remove her from Mount Holyoke College in the middle of her studies, an illness that the closest members of her family kept secret, that prevented her from ever hoping to marry, an illness which she had to keep secret or risk being locked away in an asylum. All this and more of her unparalleled poetry on part two of The Enigma of Emily Dickinson. I'm going to be frank for a moment. I honestly did not think I would become as much of a fan of Emily Dickinson as I am now 
I hadn't been exposed much to her work in my formative high school and college years. So I thought, well, she can't be that good, right? But damn, from the moment I read the poem, My Life Had Stood, A Loaded Gun, that's it. That poem cleansed any doubts I had in my mind. And the poems I read after only reaffirmed that impression. She is one of the greatest poets in the English language. I hope this episode did her justice. And I hope you tune in to part two, which will really build on everything we covered here. Now that we have a flavor for Emily's personality and her early years, we can hit the ground running with some really good stuff on the next episode. I'd like to give a big thank you to the woman who plays the voice of Emily Dickinson in this episode. Her name is Frances Lovett. Just stunning, stunning work, as you can tell. I have known Frances for a number of years through her Instagram page and her photography work. And on occasion, I have heard her do a reading of something, a snippet from a poem or a book. And from my very first impression of that, I thought, whoa, she's got some reading voice. That was about two years ago when I first filed that thought away. And last month, when I started to get things together for this episode, I thought, who could possibly do Emily justice? And as you can see, Frances does it in spades. The main instruction I told her at the outset is that Emily should sound both strong and vulnerable. Even her voice should be an enigma. I'm hoping there are some of you listening who did not know much about Emily Dickinson before this episode, and when you first heard the poems, you assumed it must be a recording of Emily herself. Ah, that was intentional. You can follow Frances Lavette and all of her work on Instagram. Just search Lady Lazarus, which is spelled L dot A dot D dot Y underscore L dot A dot Z dot A dot R dot U dot S. Lady underscore Lazarus uh, dots in between the letters. I will also link her in the episode details, which you can get to in your podcast app. Also, I want to share something personal with you, as it might give you a window into something about the creative process, which you might find interesting or insightful for your own process. When I started work on this episode, I didn't know how to introduce you to Emily, how the episode should begin. I was wrestling with that for a few days. There didn't seem to be anything that was compelling enough. And then I had a vision in my mind of this scenario. Emily's sister, Lavinia, entering her room after Emily's funeral with the intention to sort through her things and complete the task Emily asked of her to burn her letters. I didn't exactly know why this felt compelling, but it did. And then as I began to lay the scene out and the emotion of it, I realized this was a scene from my own life. Four months ago, one of my best friends tragically died. And in the cells of my body, 
I knew what that felt like to be Lavinia in that moment. I remember the day after he died, sorting through the things in his car, sitting in his driver's seat, and also being in his apartment. There was a painful stillness to it all. I don't know if that comes across in the opening of this episode, but it certainly informed and inspired that scene. So, perhaps the curious lesson there is your life experiences will inform your creative work, whether you know it or not. They will shift themselves around inside of you, behind the curtain, in unique ways, and bubble forth again in some new form. Thanks for listening to all of that. If you enjoyed the show and dig what we are doing here on Creative Codex, please share it with someone. Send them a text with the show link and say, hey, check this out, I think you'll love it, or however you want to phrase it. But sharing these episodes is the main way that this show has grown and will keep growing. And I thank you for that in advance. If you'd like to support the show and gain access to exclusive member perks, please head over to my Patreon page at patreon.com forward slash MJ Dorian. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com forward slash M-J-D-O-R-I-A-N. There you will find all of the creativity tip mini episodes, which are available to all patrons from as low as $1. And with perks like the music soundtrack of the show at tier levels of $10. Thank you to all the current patrons of Creative Codex. Shoutouts to Chris, Sam McCohey, Andy Rogers, Blake Huggins, James Schenner, Jay Booth, Logan Kshivitsky, Miha, Timothy Kukharchuk, also Adil Abdul Aziz, Anudi Valerio, Aaron Foreman, Jay Stacks, Michael Lloyd, Owen McCatier, Zuko's World, NYX Luna, and DVM. I don't know if you hear that, there's fireworks going off in the background, just for all of you. Uh, thanks so much for your continued support. You guys rock. Part two of The Enigma of Emily Dickinson will be released later this month. If you'd like to get an update the exact moment it comes out, follow me on Instagram or Twitter at MJ Dorian. You can also find little show extras and artwork there. If you have any specific questions about Emily Dickinson, head over to our subreddit and please ask them there. I will answer those questions at the end of the next episode. You can find our subreddit by simply going to Reddit and typing Creative Codex in the search bar. This has been Creative Codex, and I am your host, MJ Dorian. We'll give Emily the last word on a poem that will factor heavily on our next episode. This is my letter to the world that never wrote to me. The simple news that nature told with tender majesty Her message is committed to hands I cannot see. For love of her, sweet countrymen, judge tenderly of me.